when considering the, the weight of the world at the moment, I want to offer a story of imagination, of determination, even a little brashness and boldness and chutzpah. This is a story of when a small group of new and young ministers set out to reinvigorate an entire faith. And they succeeded. They asked questions. They pushed theological boundaries. And they also demanded more of themselves as well as demanding more of all of the people around them. As we live in this forming moment of religion and faith, and social order, and wonder what makes a difference. Here, here is one story, one response to those existential and mortal questions from another great time in human history, in this case, from around the end of the Second World War. So let me give a little background here with ties that also comes to the here and now. In the first half of the 20th century, the Western world underwent major shakeups and traumas. You had World War I, you had the Great Flu Epidemic, the Great Depression, and World War II. And up into World War II, there had been a, a growing priority in evaluating on human ability, you know, kind of onward and upward, because our minds are just that fabulous. And there were lesser concerns about higher powers in some ways. Institutions were being shaken up a little bit as well, all kinds. And amidst this, Unitarianism as a faith and Universalism as a faith were, were declining. And the Universalism I'm talking about is that in the kind of traditional Christian sense that all are saved, all are saved because Jesus died for everyone. So the one that's really grounded in our Christian practice. Universalism had been a growing faith in the 1800s, but as other Protestant traditions moved away from messages about the threat of hell and towards a more, you know, not always obvious, but a more universal salvation message, universalism, the Universalist Church of America lost um, the, the particular uniqueness of its message a little bit. And as I was doing the research on this as well, it sounds like there was just a lack of interest and concern uh, in forms of religion um, as well, whether it might be communion or formality of dress and robes and liturgy. The depth of meaning was kind of fading as well. But, but in 1945, there was this group of about nine, ten young ministers, most of them recent graduates from the School of Religion in Tufts uh, in Medford, Massachusetts. And this group of universalist ministers called themselves the humiliati, meaning the humble ones, uh, which was taken from uh, the name of an ancient Italian monastic order. You have to have a little boldness to take on the name of humiliati, let me just say. Their primary mission, they chose to accept, was the revitalization of universalism 
I mean, you know, 10 ministers saying, we're going to change all of universalism right now. But they had been seeing this loss of distinctiveness. They had been kind of lamenting with each other um, that, you know, they're like, we're called into this ministry, but our faith, what's going on with our faith? It seems to have lost its motivation and its energy and, and its own hope. Of course, one of the ironies of this is that they were actually, as much as they called themselves the humiliati, they were actually not known as terribly humble people, I'm going to say, just, just to be clear. And also to be clear, this is the time in universalist ministry when largely the ministry was of white men of Christian tradition. So this is, this is also where we come from. But they had sincere concerns. They were taking to heart their call into the world. So beginning in 1945, they had meetings that fostered fresh theological thinking and new rituals that did much to revise and renew universalism. And they developed a symbol, uh, a circle with an off-center cross. If you could see that in the graphic. We have a new trick today. Look what we can else do on the screen. And so that circle with the off-center cross, which also happens to be one of the symbols that belongs in this church as well. I found it in the supply closet. So the circle, let me tell you about this. The circle was representing a universal, with a little u, universal, universalism. That there here was an all-embracing religious tradition, a circle that was infinite and ongoing and expansive and would be entirely inclusive. The circle kind of represented all that is. And the cross, the cross certainly was coming from the Christian tradition of which we are a part. But the cross was off to the side, not in the center. And in doing so, in placing that cross off to the side, it, that was an intentional choice to recognize that we may be a lot of our tradition coming from and informed by Christian practice, but we are not the center. The Christian practice is not the center of all things. And in fact, there is a lot of room for all the other traditions that are around us. The Christianity is also no longer central to our particular universalist faith either. So here's the local connection. Here's the connection with this congregation. Clinton Lee Scott was a previous minister of this congregation in the 1930s. Um, but at the time, the humiliati came into formation. He was serving in Gloucester, Massachusetts, and he was a major supporter of theirs. And I have to imagine that somewhere along the line, some relationship somewhere resulted in this congregation also receiving and holding on to this off-center circle and cross, the symbol, what became the symbol, what the humiliati were trying to do in part was to create a distinctive symbol for universalism itself. Not just a cross, but something that was more expressive and more complete and more accurate. And so 
the circle and the off-center cross became the symbol of universalism. So they succeeded in that change in particular. So here's what they also did with their, they didn't just kind of stop at a symbol. They, they were on it. They were in it. They dove deeply into universalist theology, and they called it emergent universalism, which they described as functional, naturalistic, theistic, and humanistic. All the istics there. They really felt that one needed to focus on spiritual renewal before one could go out into, and really ground oneself particularly in spiritual um, reflection and renewal, theological discipline, before going out into the world. I mean, there's a point at which that's mutual, like you keep going in, you keep going out, but you really needed to get the theology going first. And it needed to be integrated into this life what they also were coming from was a place of uh, what one of them called impulse theology. Some of their theology was based on one of the graduate papers as they prepared for ministry. They posited a hunger of every living thing, a spiritual hunger that would propel us toward wholeness. And they were stressing that we are impelled, not compelled in the relationship with God to fulfill the potential and the possibility of our lives. We are witnessing this impulse to wholeness in humanity, but certainly deeply flawed and troubled and chaotic at times as well. And so to kindle this spirit, to kindle this theology, they were focused on new liturgical forms, emotional engagement, vestments, symbols, and they would broadcast their theology. They'd say, like, we have a good thing, and we're just going to send it to the entire universalist world, whether or not you know who we are. So they sent out newsletters, publications, um, external theo theological documents. They also were visible in themselves. So this is kind of about a group of 10 or so young men, young ministers. They wore clerical collars, which was a little bit... Um, distinctive at the time, but they also wore those clerical collars all the time. Like they went deep. Like they were on board and committed. They called the leader that was the, um, the leader among them that would organize uh, and, and kind of call them, into, call them into discipline. They called that one the abbot. Yeah, I know. <laughs> they called each other brother and used the formal names, like no nicknames. They had some pretty neat nicknames amongst each other, but no, they had to be called by their formal names. And they revised, they revised the theologies and the practices and really encouraged each other into deep discipline and then further exploration and discussion of theology and how to promote this into the world. They also showed up. Any universalist gathering of that time, there was somebody from the Humiliati further being active and engaged. They really lived into this. And I have to say, I read, they have a number of their papers and examples of their liturgical documents. And it was very theistic and also, it was certainly based in God, but also uh, you could see clearly that Jesus was present, but Jesus as the most obedient servant of God, 
clearly not divine. It's significant, terribly significant, but not divine. So Unitarian in, in theology and Universalist in theology as well. And I read some of those sections of like the weddings and the communion and so on, and the depth of it, the language of it is material that I actually still could use today. They did great work. This is in 1945, 1954 or so. The impact was felt across, you know, was part of a whole other, you know, they were responding in some ways also to a movement of re-examining universalism. Robert Cummins, from an address to the Universalist General Assembly in the 1940s, explored some of the similar ideas, and he said, the universalism cannot be limited to Protestantism or to Christianity, not without denying its very name. Ours is a world fellowship, not a Christian sect. For so long as universalism is universalism and not partialism, the fellowship bearing its name must succeed in making it unmistakably clear that all are welcome, theist and humanist, Unitarian, Trinitarian, black, white, people of color, a circumscribed, circumscribed universalism is unthinkable. And at the same time, in all of this work, I want to acknowledge that these young men, these humiliati, were also real human beings with families and commitments to church. They didn't always follow the order of the rules that they had imposed upon themselves. I read some of the um, existing papers. I mean, they truly had these higher-level, elevated, transcendent conversations. And, and I could see in the abbot's writings to the, to the brethren, as they called themselves, um, notes and, and admonitions to say, you know, you took notes at that meeting. Can I have them? You all need to show up. You all need to let me know when you're showing up because I have to make reservations. It's like, oh yeah, right. They were doing deep work and still a bunch of humans, right? Still people, which was kind of nice to see, I have to say. This group didn't last forever. This is not one of those that kind of trailed off into the sunset after a long time. In about 1954, about nine years after they came into being, the humiliati officially disbanded, feeling that their mission had in fact been accomplished and that the Universalist Church of America and the American Unitarian Association, well, they were prepared to address the matter of merger that they completed and finished in 1961 with the creation of the Unitarian Universalist Association. One of the great gifts of the humiliati was to be a major presence in helping universalism um, find a different path, not be so tied to the centrality of Christianity. And that let the Universalist Church be more open to what could happen, more able to adapt and evolve, and able to finally have a conversation with the Unitarians and become a shared denomination, a new creature out of these two groups. But the humiliati also didn't just stop there. They went on to major leadership roles in Unitarianism and Universalism and Unitarian Universalism. 
They remained elders in our faith, and some of them truly living long enough to be cherished for several generations, including by ministers such as myself. They invited a whole faith to re-engage with contemplation, the meaning of religious ritual in the modern age, and how it can function in life, in the role of the minister, and how to make it less, less about the individual, but more about the body, more about how we are all connected together. I want to offer one of the ways that we've seen um, some of their legacy symbolically as well. One of the symbols, uh, one of the most common symbols in Unitarian Universalism, how that's been represented, is two circles, double circle, a double set of circles with a chalice, a flaming chalice within it. If we could see that. There we go. Thank you. So the circles, one represents universalism, one represents Unitarianism. The flaming chalice um, is one that has the communion cup that is available to all to partake in the religious community. And the flame having many meetings, but one being the light of hope, the spark of life, but also a way that the world, a way to illuminate the world around us. So in the Unitarians, they had the chalice at the center of the circle. The Universalists had the off-center cross in the circle. And they brought them together to have the two circles with the chalice inside. One of those circles usually offset from having the chalice be offset from the center of the circle itself to continue with that meaning that we're not even putting our chalice at the center of all things either. Thank you. What I want to offer the story for today is part of our conversation about how we get to evolve. As I said earlier, we're at the forming edge of social movements of the world, of society, of faith, of mortality, of wondering what comes next. Recognizing that people have done this before and have gone on, have gone on in care and love and able to transform a whole faith. Oh, let's be that ambitious, shall we? Ooh, dial me up. That there is so much possibility. You know, I realized that in looking back at the humiliati, some of the language that they were using at that time is language that I know I've already absorbed, that I've already heard from other leaders that I've already received in the course of my life as a Unitarian Universalist and as a course of training as a minister. There is beauty and poetry. It's something mortal and transcendent all at once. They wanted a life. They wanted for all of us, these humiliati, a life of practice, a life of theological engagement. And they gave us a chance to do so and expand our vision of what religion and the institution could be and then prepare to be ready to move into a new form. Continue to be open to service and to ministry, even when that particular experiment came to a close. I want to finish 
with one of the meditation from one of the best known and respected members of the humiliati, the late Reverend Gordon McKeeman. He was one of those who was known by generations until his death in 2013. He remained active and present, showing up at General Assembly. I remember seeing him at the annual gatherings so early in my ministry as well. He was one of those who embodied that practice and our faith. So I want to close with one of his meditations. Ministry is a quality of relationship between and among human beings that beckons forth hidden possibilities, inviting people into deeper and more constant and more reverent relationship with the world and with one another, carrying forward a long heritage of hope and liberation that has dignified and informed the human venture over so many centuries, being present to for, with others, in their terrors and torments, in their grief and misery and pain, knowing that those feelings are our feelings too. Celebrating the triumphs of the human spirit, the miracles of birth and life, the wonders of devotion and sacrifice. Witnessing to life-enhancing values, speaking truth to power, standing for human dignity and equity, for compassion and aspiration. Believing in life in the presence of death, struggling with human responsibility against principalities and structures that ignore humaneness and become instruments of death. And all these, and much, much more than all of them, present in the wordless, the unspoken, the ineffable. It is speaking and living the highest that we know, living with the knowledge that is never as deep or as wide or as high as we wish. Whenever there is a meeting that summons us to our better selves, wherever our lostness is found, our fragments are united, our wounds begin healing, Our spines stiffen, our muscles grow strong for the task, and there, there is ministry. May we be brave, compassionate, and fierce witnesses to each other and to the great tasks that live within us, around us, because of us, and that call us on. Let us go forth 